Let's turn one more time to the book of Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 18 as we wrap up our time in this letter uh, today. We started Colossians back on uh, March the 3rd. So we spent the last 16 weeks walking through this letter. A lot is packed into these four chapters. A lot of uh, theology, a lot of theology and practice, a lot of things that really help us individually as Christians and certainly corporately as a church. And you may get to these final verses and think, well, this is just kind of a, a list that Paul gives. Kind of, here's some shout outs from some people. And you may not think that they're all that helpful. Uh, nothing really here to see, but if you think that, you would be mistaken. Uh, these verses are just as inspired as the others, and I think the Lord has something for us to see and to hear and to take away from these final verses in Colossians. Let's hear them as I read them, beginning in verse 7. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicean, Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicean, to Nympha, the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from, the, from Laodicea. And, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Father, would you come now and by your Holy Spirit give us understanding of your word. Father, as we walk through this greeting, this closing of this letter, Lord, would you help us to see the truth that's revealed in it through all of this, all these relationships that Paul had, this network of faithful brothers and sisters that serve the cause of the gospel. Father, would you help this to inform our own ministry and to be of encouragement to us in every way? Lord, give us sight to see and ears to hear now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is the best way that you learn? I know that many of us would have different learning approaches. Maybe we learn better different ways. And certainly that's the case. But you think about, a, think about just going on, th thinking about a, a new job, for example. Uh, when you're first on the job, there's a period of time when you are merely observing. You're watching how others do that particular task. I mean, you can read the manuals, you can think back to your college instruction or high school instruction or other instruction that you've received, but it seems that nothing replaces training like seeing something else done. Even if you're not a visual learner, you're still helped by that. 
I think that's true as well when it comes to living out the instructions that God has given us. It's critical and absolutely essential that we read and that we hear what God's word has for us. As God instructs us in the scriptures, as we've walked through Colossians, we've seen just a call to faithfulness in the gospel. There's been false teachers abounding. There's been false gospels preached. And Paul's saying, stay faithful to the true gospel that you've heard. And so he spends those first two chapters just taking us far and deep into the gospel, and then he begins to unpack the ramifications or the implications, the, the, the impact of the gospel in our lives individually and corporately as, as, as a result of this transformative work of grace. We see in chapter 3 and following just the, the fleshing out of what it means to live as those who have been changed by the power of the gospel. And then you get to chapter 4. We spent the last couple of weeks looking there about prayer and conducting ourselves wisely to outsiders, to unbelievers, how we engage them in evangelism. We come now to this greeting. And I think one of the things that you see here is the, the, the importance of living in close proximity to other Christians as we live out the gospel together and as we live out the mission that God has given us together. Not only has Paul described in great detail what the gospel is, not only has he given instruction in how we're called to live it out, he now points to real people with real experiences that we're striving to live out the very things that he's been teaching. He's telling us a lot specifically about the nature of ministry as he points to these men and women in these final verses, helping us understand what the nature of true ministry looks like. And one of the things that I take away from this, this, this closing, these final verses, is that one of the things that I say, you know, you, you, know, you read the scripture and you hear a lot about the apostle Paul. He kind of gets the, the, the spotlight, doesn't he? He, he kind of gets focused on a lot, and certainly he was an important part of the advance of the gospel in the early church. But Paul was not a Lone Ranger Christian He had a deep network of faithful brothers and sisters around him seeking to serve the cause of the gospel, the advance of the gospel, the establishing and the the strengthening of churches. So one of the things that we take away here is that churches are not built by famous personalities, but by a network of ordinary people who love Jesus, who love each other as they band together for the sake of the gospel and the planting of churches and the advancing of the kingdom. That's really what we see in these verses. I'm going to show you why I think we see that. As we look at five things, five things, not three, I'm getting five, I'm getting all I can in for the next ten weeks this morning. Five things we learn about Paul's ministry, not just Paul's ministry, but this ministry of the early church that should encourage and shape our own ministry. Five observations that we take away from this passage. First thing that we see is this, the blessing of having a shared ministry. The blessing of a shared ministry. As I said, Paul gets a lot of attention in the New Testament, but it's interesting that in virtually every letter that Paul writes, he's quick to acknowledge other people around him and his dependence upon them. Now, he's quick to point that out in virtually every letter, as I've said. Romans 16 is a, or Romans, the end of Romans is a great place to go. Look, we saw that when we walked through the book of Romans. 
We can see that in virtually every letter that he's written, and we certainly see it here. Paul had quite the network around him, quite the ministry team. He had a deep network of fellow gospel workers that served together for the sake of the gospel. Here in Colossians chapter 4, he identifies no less than 10 individuals by name. 10 individuals, and he says something about most of them that demonstrates their critical role in the early church and in this missionary effort. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to just kind of walk you through the list of people here, and then we're going to finish up the sermon by looking at some more observations. So I just want to talk in the blessing of shared ministry. I just want to show you Paul's fellow workers here. I'm going to divide them up into three categories. The first is the messengers, those who took the letter to the Colossians, and Paul was likely in prison in Rome, quite a distance away. So there are, first of all, the messengers, those who took the letter and brought it back to the church of the Colossians. We see that there in uh, the first verse. Tychicus or Tychicus, however you want to say that. Um, And then you see it in Onesimus as well in verse 9. Tychicus was a companion of Paul. We first meet him in Acts 20, verse 4, where we see that he was one of the ones that's waiting for Paul at Troas to join him in his third missionary journey. Later on, Paul would send him to Crete to join Titus. We see that in Titus 3, verse 2. And later in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he sends him to Ephesus. And so he's a very important player in the early church's ministry and as far as the churches were, were, were as they're being established and as they're being strengthened and raised up. So Tychicus, he's the one that we see is going to bring this letter back. And then there's Onesimus. He would accompany Tychicus back to Colossae. And we know him as a runaway slave, specifically from the book of Philemon. He had left his master Philemon and had run into Paul during Paul's imprisonment and was converted. And Paul writes the letter to Philemon. We see that there in the the New Testament later on. He wrote a letter to welcome him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother. A brother in Christ. In fact, you see here that he is our faithful and beloved brother. Verse 9. Both of these men were sent by Paul back to Colossae with the letter and with the report of what had taken place with Paul. And so there are the first two that you see there in verses 7 through 9, the messengers that would bring the letter back. But then there are also what we could say the fellow workers. All of these were, in a sense, fellow workers. But more specifically, we see these fellow workers listed in verses 10 through 14. There's, first of all, Aristarchus from Thessalonica. We see that in Acts chapter 27, verse 2. Another travel companion with Paul on his third missionary journey. He was with Paul during the riots of Ephesus in Acts 19, and he also apparently had spent some jail time with Paul. Notice he calls him my fellow prisoner there in verse 10. And then there's Mark, cousin of Barnabas, also known as John Mark. He's the writer of the second gospel, Matthew Mark. He had traveled with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. At some point, Mark leaves that mission team, And he returns to Jerusalem, which kind of made Paul mad. We remember there in Acts chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement concerning Mark, Barnabas' cousin, where it was so sharp that they decided to part ways. Barnabas going with Mark and Paul going a separate way. But apparently all these years later, this rift had been mended. And Mark was now a fully restored 
servant serving alongside of Paul there in the latter years of Paul's life. Then you have Jesus, also called Justice, a very common name during this day and time. We're not 100% sure who this specific Justice is. Could be a reference in Acts 18 verse 7 as one of Paul's supporters, but frankly, we just don't know. It's a common name. Really, he could simply be one of the unknowns of Scripture. There are several of those in the Bible, people listed by name, and the only thing that we know about them is about their name in particular letter. And there are many of those, and it's an encouragement to us that there are many unknowns out there. You don't have to have a famous name. You don't have to have the spotlight, but just steady, faithful servants of the gospel. And here's we, we find one such, of the, such person. So these three gentlemen, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, also called Justice, notice Paul says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. These were fellow Jews serving in a largely Gentile mission field. In fact, it seems to indicate here that these were largely the only Jews that had joined Paul and certainly that, I'm sure, burdened Paul in some way, Paul himself being a Jew. But he was encouraged by these brothers' faithfulness and partnership. You go on to see uh, in verse 12, this gentleman by the name of Epaphras from Colossae, he says he's one of you, Servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. We know Epaphras mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7, likely the one through which the Colossians first heard the gospel. Epaphras is likely the founder of the church at Colossae. Paul didn't plant the church. Likely it was Epaphras that heard the gospel from Paul and came back to his hometown to plant the church there. Now we know he's a man who continued to persevere in prayer on behalf of the Colossian believers. And then there's Luke in verse 14, another of Paul's companions who was a medical doctor that accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys, joining him specifically on his second missionary journeys and was with him the rest of the time. We know him also as the author of the third gospel, as well as the book of Acts. And then there was Demas listed there briefly, verse 14, also part of Paul's missionary team. We'll say more about him later. So you can see that Paul is surrounded by this diverse group of co-laborers, all serving different but critical roles for the cause of the gospel. Notice the words of affirmation and encouragement that Paul gives of many of these. He speaks very highly of them, talks about their faithfulness in the Lord, being fellow servants. He's encouraging the Colossians to receive uh, certain uh, ones of these as they came to Colossae. He's, he's writing on behalf of these brothers and sisters, encouraging the church to value these fellow laborers. Paul was no Lone Ranger Christian. He understood the corporate nature of ministry and was deeply thankful for his fellow workers. So we see here the blessing of a shared ministry. It's just a reminder to us too, church, as we think about the blessing of a shared ministry. Listen, the ministry of this church, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, is not my ministry. I could fall over right now and it would, it would continue on. Praise God for that. I could go away for 10 Sundays and by God's grace, it's going to continue on. This is not my ministry. This is the ministry of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. This is a shared ministry. God has gifted and equipped every single one of you to serve in some capacity to continue to 
grow this ministry, to continue to advance the cause of the gospel, and to make disciples right here in the community that the Lord has planted us in. So there is certainly the blessing of a shared ministry. But I want you to also notice several more names. We could say these are the recipients of the letter. They were there on the receiving end. We know that Paul concludes his letter, and we see that the letter was also to be read in Laodicea. Laodicea was about 10, 15 miles away from Colossae, just to the, to the west. And so you, the very close in proximity. And so the letter that he's writing was also to be read there. Apparently there was another letter written for Laodicea that was also to be read in Colossae, but we don't know where that letter is. Apparently it's lost. Some think it's the actual letter to the Ephesians. Some think it's just the letter, again, of the Colossians, but I think most consensus is is that we don't have it. It's a lost letter uh, that we have no access to. But yet we see the importance here, don't we, of this, this letter being received not just by the church at Colossae, but by the brothers and sisters at Laodicea. As he says, um, Give my greetings to the brothers, Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. So this shows a wider audience than just the Colossians that Paul has in view, largely through his apostolic authority as he's writing to instruct the church, but really the audience is much broader than one single church. You have the brothers and sisters at Laodicea is receiving, along with the brothers and sisters at Colossae. But then there is Nympha, you see, listed there in verse uh, 14. The King James has this as a man, but the majority agree that this was a lady. Her particular role is unclear, but we do know that she hosted a church in her home. She could have been a woman of means or some kind of leader in the church or simply just a co-worker in the cause of the gospel. We don't know anything specific, but we know clearly that she hosted a church in her home. And then there is Archippus, a member of the church there in Colossae. In the letter to Philemon, Paul calls him our fellow soldier. Likely a connection to Philemon's household somehow. Given a specific message from Paul here that he was to fulfill the ministry that he'd received in the Lord. Again, all of these names are more than just names. They are living witnesses to the work and power and influence of the gospel as well as to the idea that gospel ministry requires many hands to make it work. Friends, ministry requires us all to be engaged. The church is not a come sit and watch thing. It is something for us all to take part in. God's word has made that abundantly clear time and time again. Not just in listing of names, but specific references where 1 Corinthians chapter 12, how we've all been gifted, how all of us are one body yet many members, and all the members make a difference. Each of us have a role to play. So the blessing of shared ministry is huge. This is not my ministry. This is not... Mine and Jeremy's ministry. This is not the elders' ministry of redeeming grace, but this is our ministry. We get the joy of serving alongside each other in for the cause of Christ, the advance of the gospel, the glory of God. But not only do we see the blessing of a shared ministry, we see the encouragement to a faithful ministry. As we go back and kind of walk through this list a little bit, highlighting some of these different individuals 
You see some things about them and some things that Paul says in reference to them that I think is quite instructive. There are two individuals Paul mentions early on, Tychicus and Epaphras. We could also add Onesimus here. Tychicus in verse 7 is described, notice how he's described, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. We see of Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. We know from verse 12, Epaphras was a man who labored hard in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. These are, these are examples to us of those who gave themselves for the good of these early believers, these, these churches. I mean, think about being described in this way, beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servants. Even looking at Epaphras there in verse 12, notice, notice even the, the, the prayer that he prays. Notice how Paul describes this. He's one of you. He's one of you. He's from you. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. I can't think of any greater encouragement than to know of someone struggling on my behalf, on our behalf, for the purposes listed here. Notice, if you want to know good ways to pray for the church, uh, don't just make them up in your head. Just go to the scriptures. The Bible gives us wonderful things to pray for each other and for local churches. Here we see that he's praying. Notice, it's not just a, 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 a prayer meeting. He's always struggling, always struggling, persevering. He's, he's, he's going on and on in his praying for their good, for their maturity, and for their full assurance in all the will of God. So how he prays and for what he prays, we see that he's focused more on quality, not on quantity. I'm afraid that many times in many places today we see churches doing everything they can to boost their quantity not their quality. And I've always said if you want to focus on something, you should focus on health, on quality, on maturity, on faithfulness, and the numbers will take care of themselves. We'll leave the numbers to the Lord, and we'll leave the health to the Lord as well because he's sovereign. We need him to work. I think we've been called to faithfulness, to steward the ministry that he's given. Brothers and sisters, this is such a good reminder as well as we think about this encouragement to being a faithful minister, it's a good reminder to us about giving our lives to things that are of eternal significance. It would be a shame for us to be described in any other way than faithful brother or faithful sister or fellow servant. Faithful minister. I don't know about you, but I find it hugely encouraging when I look at other more mature, seasoned believers, and one of the gifts that God has given us are faithful, faithful siblings, faithful brothers and sisters that model godliness and faithfulness well. It's been one of the blessings in my own life to look at others and to learn and be encouraged by their faithfulness. There's a lot that we can get caught up in this life, but right here is what really matters. These men teach us the importance of a steady, faithful life lived in view of the gospel. Friends, I think it's also an encouragement to us to live in close proximity to such brothers and sisters. That you would surround yourself with people that would encourage you, that are good models for you 
that would point you to Christ, that would point you to the gospel, that would pray for you, that would build you up in the faith and not tear you down. I think it's also a good reminder to us that we, we should be such models of faithfulness. It's an encouragement to a faithful ministry. We're not just called to endure. We're not just called to be present. We're called to a faithful ministry. Surround ourselves with these kinds of people that model godliness and gospel faithfulness. But not only do we have an encouragement to a faithful ministry, we see the significance of a unified ministry. Obviously, Paul made a lot of friends. I was reading in one place recently this week where it says that no less than 100 people are mentioned by name, maybe more, more than 100 individuals listed by name that Paul had in his greater network of ministry. It's a large ministry network, and his ministry is a great model of what it looks like to have one body with many members. I think there are several things that are highlighted in the unity of this ministry that are, I think are important for us to see. Number one, the first thing that we see is that diversity is good. Diversity is good. Just in this list alone, we have quite the snapshot of just how diverse this early missionary force was. There are men and women. There are Jews and Gentiles. There are slaves and free. There are locals and transplants. There are educated and non-educated. And even here in the midst of this particular letter, you have two gospel writers and a physician. And it's just a reminder to us that the mission that we've been called to embrace as the church is a wonderful mission that we've been called to, to partake in as we seek to make disciples. And that in the midst of that, having a, a God-ordained and God-given diversity is a beautiful thing. I think sometimes we want to minimize our differences as much as we can in order to highlight our togetherness. And certainly while the gospel welcomes all into the one family, it does not minimize our differences. It takes us all in our differences and unites us around one common reality. And in that common reality, God is not saying, forget about your differences. He's wanting those differences to stick out, to show that even in our differences, we have a common purpose, a common savior. There's, there's nothing more encouraging than to see men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, on and on we could go, living in unity for the sake of the gospel. Paul's ministry was a great reflection of such diversity. And we know that the kingdom of God is going to be made up of such people, made up of men and women from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. It is no accident that Paul points out these three Jewish co-laborers in his greeting to the Colossians. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must seek, as we think about the greater, greater picture of the kingdom of God, this is why we must seek to be a church that strives to reflect as much diversity in the kingdom as we possibly can, that we would seek it, that we would pray for it, so that the church local looks as much as the church universal and the kingdom of God as possible. Diversity is good. It's something we should celebrate. It's something we should be encouraged by. It's something we should be, be, be devoted to. Second highlight that we see in the unity is that interdependence is needed. 
interdependence is needed. Notice the language Paul uses. He references several by name, but obviously by name, but he describes them as fellow servants, fellow prisoner. This was not a top-down kind of Paul looking beneath him. It was Paul looking beside him. He's a fellow laborer. She's a fellow servant. Just think about Paul's network. Just think about what you see here in the text. I mean, think about it. Without Paul, there would have been no, humanly speaking, all right, we're going on human terms here. Without Paul, there would have been no Epaphras. Without Epaphras, there would be no church at Colossae. Yes, somebody else could have been raised up, but speaking of this list here, he's praying for the church. He's planted the church. He's continuing to encourage the church. Paul benefited from this ministry. Without Tychicus, the letter would not have gone there. Uh, Without all of these, there would be no defense of the gospel in Colossae and encouragement to persevere in the gospel. Think about Laodicea. Without Nympha opening her home, there would be no place for the church to have met. All of these serving very critical roles, being interdependent up on each other. Or look at it another way. Tychicus was encouraging and bringing comfort to the church. Epaphras praying for the church, Paul benefiting from the comfort and encouragement of Aristarchus, Justice, and Mark. The believers in Colossae receiving this instruction and being encouraged to persevere in the truth. Again, just a a brief snapshot of how interdependent and reliant upon each other these early believers were. Friends, it's a reminder to us of how insufficient we are to stand on our own. We need the gifts, talents, and resources of other Christians. We need each other. And this mutual dependence is something that God has hardwired in us. We need each other. We need to be a community of faithful brothers and sisters coming alongside each other for the common cause of the gospel. And if the ministry of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is going to continue to be healthy, and have a lasting gospel impact in this community and to the ends of the earth, then it will require us to be all in. Every single one of us to be all in. We need each other. The ministry should never be dependent upon one or two people. That is not how God set this up. And I am thankful on that note that that is not the case here. I am so thankful that I can go to Brazil and take a sabbatical and not worry about what's going to happen with the church because I know that this church is not built on me. Praise God for that. Faithful co-laborers here that serve so faithfully. I'm so thankful for how you do that. I think this is an encouragement for me to say thank you for all that you do, but also a reminder, let's keep doing it. Let's keep being faithful. Let's keep striving hand in hand, side by side for the cause of the gospel. And if you're kind of sitting on the sidelines a bit, maybe a little bit of exhortation that there is room for you, friend, to come and join us in the work that God has called us to participate in here at Redeeming Grace. Ministry should never be dependent upon one person. There is this need for interdependence. We see that here even in this ministry of the early church. But also as we think about unity, as we think about the significance of a unified ministry, we see how the early Christians made reconciliation a priority. Reconciliation was a priority. We see not just the impact the gospel had among lost people, but here in this text, 
we see a glimpse of how the gospel shaped and worked in Christians. Now, again, at the end of Paul's life, most likely he wrote the, book of, or the letter of 2 Timothy. It's likely Paul's last letter that we have, historically speaking. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says there that virtually everyone had deserted him except Luke. But then he tells Timothy this, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in ministry. Toward the end of his life, one of the last things Paul says is, Get Mark and bring him. He is useful. Same Mark, most likely, as the, as the one listed here, cousin of Barnabas. Same Mark that years ago that, had had, that they had had a great conflict. They, they, they had an argument and they had parted ways. This conflict years prior where they had parted ways in Acts chapter 15. But all these years later, these two men had apparently reconciled such, so much so that Mark is not only a present gift to the ministry, he's a highly valued gift to the ministry. So much so that Paul's saying at the end of his life, please bring Mark with you, Timothy. He is useful to me in ministry. You see just a, a glimpse there of the testimony, the power of the gospel to bring about reconciliation. It's a testimony to the work of the gospel in our lives. It's, a, it's the gospel that brings about reconciliation vertically and it's the gospel that will bring about reconciliation horizontally. There will be people that disappoint you. There will be people you will disappoint. There will, people, there will be people that anger you and there will be people you anger. But when there are broken relationships, it must be, as we see here, our priority to pursue reconciliation and peace with each other. Because you never know, even in the greatest rift, even in the greatest conflict, how God may mend that and heal that so much so that there is greater gospel impact afterwards than there was even before. I think we see just a, a quick testimony to that here. Reconciliation being a priority. Our, our goal should not be seeing how many people we can drive away. Good, glad they're gone. You ever heard, I may have heard a couple of preachers say that before. We should never think that way. We should think, if there's a conflict with a brother or sister, I need to pursue peace with them. I need to pursue reconciliation because the unity of the gospel matters. What we do together matters. So you see the, the call to to this kind of unity, the significance of this unified ministry on display here. But then a fourth thing that we see that we learn from is what I would call the warning of a failed ministry. The warning of a failed ministry. In verse 14, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. This was probably about three, Paul writes this, about three to four years prior to his final letter, 2 Timothy. So this is three to four years before 2 Timothy was written. Here in Colossians 4, we see that Demas is an active ministry alongside of Luke and Paul, and he's sending his greeting to the Colossian Christians. Luke and Demas say, hey, see that there in the text. But just two, three, four years later, Demas was no longer there. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's last letter. Some three to four years later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul is instructing Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. We don't know much more about Demas than what has been said. We know that three to four years prior, he's along with Luke, faithful, co-labor in the gospel, and sometime later he deserted and has gone back to Thessalonica because he's in love with the world. In the end, the world had made a place in Demas's heart that was more important than that of the gospel. Quite the contradiction, isn't it? As, the, the contrast we see with Mark. Mark had left and now was reconciled and Demas was there and now had abandoned them. And that's the final word we have on Demas. We don't know what happens after that. But the final word is that he had deserted because he was in love with the world. He looked the part, he talked the part, he acted the part, but in the end he did not last. Brothers and sisters, what a sobering warning to us. You can look the part, you can talk the part, you can even temporarily walk the part. But it's what matters in the end that's most important. Did you persevere? Did you last for the sake of Christ? Let this be a warning to all of us that the world and its enticements are so strong. So strong. It's easier to serve the world at times than it is the cause of the gospel. It's more convenient. You have people that like you a lot more. On and on we could go. But let this just be kind of a, 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 a loud warning to us. Let's not be like Demas. Let's not look Let's not look real and in the end be phony. There are going to be times, friends, when you're going to have to decide, and I think in some ways on a daily, if not weekly basis, will I take up my cross and follow Jesus or will I love and go the way of the world? Am I going to be faithful to the cause of the gospel or am I going to go the way of the world? In some ways that's a daily decision we have to make. Sometimes we're going to be tempted to the nth degree where we're just struggling so much to, what am I going to hold fast to? Be reminded that there are people in the world much like Demas. They were there for a while, then they fell away. Demonstrating in the end that they weren't truly part of the people of God. Just let that be a warning to us. And then last but not least, we see the need for a grace-filled ministry. The need for a grace-filled ministry ministry. We see that verse 18, Paul picks up the pen from his secretary that was writing the letter and he signed it himself. Now, most of the letters written in these days, Paul would have been speaking and someone would have been writing it out as he spoke, but he says in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. His last words to them, remember my chains. Grace be with you. I think as he says, remember my chains, I'm not convinced, based upon all the things that we see from Paul elsewhere, you don't see Paul pleading with them for care packages. You don't see Paul telling a, a great lengthy list of, of just how bad it is, of how hard, hard he has it. 
and pleading for some way for them to to find a, a way of release for him. Obviously, he would have been happy to have that. But what you see, even when he's writing from prison, he is most concerned about the cause of the gospel. And I think as he says, remember my chains, he's in essence saying, remember me. Don't forget to pray for me, but remember that it's worth it. Gospel ministry is worth it, even if it, even if it results in me being in chains. Let this be a reminder to you to persevere and to be faithful. And then he says, grace be with you. Grace be with you. He begins the letter in chapter 1, verse 2 with grace, and he ends this letter in chapter, 14, verse eight, or in chapter 4, verse 18, with grace. You see, Paul understood that everything that we are and everything that we do is absolutely dependent upon the grace of God. Just as Paul begins this letter with a clear focus on grace, he, he, he closes this letter with a focus on grace because it is grace that has brought them here, and it is grace that will lead them on. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded and exhorted here that we must never take our eyes off of grace. I believe that so strongly we put it in our name. Let us never take our eyes off of grace. It is grace that has saved us. It is grace that sustains us. And it is grace that will compel us onward in the cause of the gospel. And it is grace that will one day complete us. So Paul, as he says, grace be with you. Yet another reminder of how desperately we need that grace. How desperately we need that grace. Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, we have a lot of work to do. And I know the temptation, easy for me to say this. Well, it's summer, let's just kind of ease up a bit. Friend, whether you're being a faithful neighbor, a faithful friend, a faithful family member, a faithful coworker, We're always working for the cause of the gospel. We're co-laborers together for the witness of the gospel in this community and to the ends of the earth. Whether it's in a river community in the jungles of the Amazon Basin, which 12 of us are going to next weekend, or right here in St. Mary's County, we have a glorious mission that God has given us that we together can serve in, empowered by the Lord himself. And friend, there is a place for every single one of you in that. We've all been called, we've all been equipped to take part in this ministry, and we must be faithful to it till Christ comes again. So let's be reminded as we close this letter that there's work to be done. And the joyful thing that we get to celebrate this morning is that we get to do this work together. We're better together. We're better in this great gospel network that we have as co-laborers and fellow workers together than we are alone. And I'm so thankful that God has given us one another and I'm so thankful that God has given us this family known as Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, that we get to be together in this mission until Jesus comes again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of grace that you have done in us. Lord, we acknowledge that everything we have comes from you. We acknowledge that our salvation from beginning to end is your work, it is your doing. We recognize, Lord, that is the local church, the church that you have promised to build, you've established, you've put us in. 
Father, we're a community. We're a fellowship. We're a family. And Lord, I pray that even from our text this morning that we would see the significance, the blessing, the encouragement of doing ministry together and how better we are when we do ministry together, when we see the benefit of each other's gifts and we seek to encourage each other in the work that you've called us to do. God, would you help us be faithful to that end? Would you help us to be a strong, a strong and mighty army for your glory in this community? God, it's a joy that we get to do this together. It's a privilege that you have called us to be together for this purpose. So God, would you help us to see that? And even this morning to commit ourselves anew to this calling you've given us as a church. Father, would you, would you let this word resonate in our hearts and let it linger for, for a time that we would just see the benefit and blessing of all that you're doing here we would be blessed, that we'd be encouraged, we'd strive to, even in our diversity, be unified. God, that we would be warned and that we would cling to your grace and that we would do this all together for your glory. Lord, we know that this is not about us, that this is all about you. This is all for your glory. So God, would you help us to live to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.